2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Conscious Capitalists with myself, Timothy Henry, and my partner in making the world a better place through business, Raj Jasodia. Hey, Raj.
0: Hey, Timothy. Good to see you after our little summer hiatus.
2: Yeah, yeah. We'll have to get back into the rhythm of these things. And so for the listening audience, any faux pas, you know, it's just because we're rusty. And we'll see what the editing does to make us all sound good. Today we are really, really lucky to have the person we have with us today because he and his organization are really making a difference in this whole discussion about reinventing capitalism. And today we have Martin Whitaker, who's the founding CEO and current CEO of Just Capital and is responsible for the overall leadership of the organization. He's also a co-founder and board member of the Creo Syndicate, a family office investment network a board member of Carbon Disclosure Project US, and a member of the Forbes Finance Council and Forbes contributor. As if he doesn't have enough to do, he's also won a couple of awards recently. You know, he's been named to the 2020 NACD, that's the National Association of Corporate Directors, Directorship 100. That's their annual list of the most 100 influential people in the boardroom and on corporate governance. And he's been also named to the Business Insiders 2020 list of 100 people Transforming business now. I've also got a plug that he's a, he's got a doctorate from the University of Edinburgh. He's got an MBA from London University, University of London, and most importantly, he has a master's degree from my hometown, McGill University, and a BSc from the University of Saint Andrews. Martin, welcome! So glad to have you with us.
1: Timothy, thank you, Raj. Great to be here. Well, I should just like stop the podcast now. I appreciate the kind introduction. I don't want to. I don't want to, uh, uh, disappoint. So, so, but, but no, thank thank you very. It, it's great to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm super excited. You know, uh, you guys are both really, um, instrumental to this whole movement, this whole space. And, um, you know, we're just trying to make our contribution in whatever way we can. So really appreciate the chance to meet with you today and talk about that.
2: Well, I, I love, you know, we'll get into all the things that just capital does, but I know that you begin with your mission statement, which is always a good thing. What's your purpose? And if I've got it right, it says we are capitalists committed to stakeholder capitalism. And maybe begin with that, the definition of stakeholder capitalism, because that's sort of at the core of I think what we're going to be talking about today.
1: Yeah, it's it's really quite simple. I mean, we're we're we believe that companies create value for each of their stakeholders um and that in doing so they create value for the companies themselves and their investors and that's that's the best path to long long long-term success for any business and for society more broadly um it's certainly a better path for capitalism which is obviously under threat these days and and we don't think that that that's sort of antithetical to making money and free market economics, you know, in that sense, we feel as though it's a path to, to have a better form of capitalism um, that works for more people. And and that if you have that, you know, good outcomes uh, will be created.
2: Brilliant. Love it. Those are, are sweet words to us and maybe tell the audience and a little bit about just capital you know why does it exist where did it come from and and then maybe start to talk a little bit about some of the key programs that you've
1: got sure sure it's kind of an interesting story so um it really began with Deepak Chopra and he was teaching a course at Columbia I don't know if you know this but it's kind of an interesting story so he's teaching mm. teaching a course on on sort of just markets, and he he in a, in a sort of a post Occupy Wall Street world, you know, he began to think more 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 carefully about what what is the role of business in creating a purposeful society? How can companies play a role in in bettering people's lives? And um, you know, this idea of the just company uh, was was sort of you know sparked within him and in his class this became a topic of discussion. What, what, what is a just company? What does it look like? What does it do? And he, he sort of, I guess that stuck with him. And he, he, he went to through a series of uh, a couple of intermediaries, a guy called Poccialla, who leads a firm right now called Delos, um, uh, Ronaldo Brutico, there, there are a few others that sort of connected Deepak to Paul Tudor Jones, who obviously, He's very well known as a successful investment manager, trader, uh, philanthropist. Um, and Paul's instinct was that's really interesting. I wonder if that's an investment um, proposition. If you invested in just companies, how would they do? So they did a little bit of um, sort of back testing and analysis. This was sort of late 2013 and realized actually it's kind of interesting. If you created an index of companies, you might be onto something. They then began to think about the question of, well, how do you define just, you know, who defines that? And so this notion of, well, it doesn't really matter what Deepak thinks is important, or it doesn't really matter what Paul Jones thinks is important. To their credit, and I I suppose, you know, this is sort of like a vision that I'd like to explore with you on this podcast, because I think this vision has sort of really taken root. It's about what the public, believes and that that if you can align corporate behavior with the public's priorities uh what they think is important um you could do something really interesting you might even maybe restore some faith in business and capitalism as a force for good so so just capital was sort of conceived with that in in mind and we've built an organization that basically does three things first of all as a nonprofit, this is all as a 501c3, very important for people to understand that. So we, we do a huge amount of survey work, and every year we survey thousands and thousands of people on a fully representative basis to ask to, to really answer that question. What is what does a just company mean to you? What does it do? And so that gives us a whole set of issues which which have been identified through that polling and survey work, which is all weighted according to individual preference. Um, We then as as an organization go and gather data so we can measure and track and rank and analyze how large publicly traded companies in America actually perform on all of those issues. so that's a whole research process which we can which we can get into leads to some very interesting observations brings us in very close contact with large large corporations. And then the third set of things we do is we take all of that data all of that research and we drive change. So we produce rankings, we produce a lot of media content really trying to spotlight leadership, showcase best practice and incentivize companies to drive change. We do a lot of work in the investment world, working with investment managers who license our data to build just investment products so investors can invest in the most just companies. Um, we do an increasing amount of sort of public campaign work. So the companies, we award a, a seal to those companies and they display it and use that as sort of a public affirmation of their leadership leadership. And increasingly doing work in the policy domain to try and explore what what, what might policies look like that could support a more just economy. But I think the backdrop to this, which has really actually dramatically changed over the last seven years since we started, I became CEO in July, 2014. So I'm just past the seven year mark. And um, the backdrop really, I think is, one in which capitalism right now and stakeholder capitalism is is a topic of of very high level and important debate. What what even is it? Um, There's disagreement over, over what it is. There's disagreement over how to pursue it. But I think it's a defining one because I think if we don't get it right, if we feel as though a business as usual is, is the way to go. If that prevails, you know, you can be very fearful for how that plays out. Um, how that, what, what, what does that result in? Um, and what does that mean for society where inequality and people feeling sort of like disengaged, like it's not, it's not really working for them. That's a very dangerous, that's a very dangerous feeling. So I think the, the, the underlying thread here is, is a very important one. And we'll link back to, um, you know, to, to all of our futures and then does the next generation of capitalism in America look like and around the world?
2: Well, you know, you and I've had a prior conversation and when that conversation, I I shared uh, this book that I've been reading lately, The World According to Peter Drucker by uh, a reporter, Jack Beattie. And um, in that book, he has a chapter where he summarizes the first four books that Drucker wrote in the late thirties and through the forties during the war and what he was doing was saying hey listen capitalism coming out of the great depression is in a crisis and it's a crisis of capitalism not versus socialism but versus fascism and got into a real discussion about what happens when the economic system is perceived as not being equal and not being fair and without that sense of just society and just businesses You know, all kinds of bad things can happen. (laughs) So I think it's fascinating that we're coming back to this right now. And it's such an important topic because, you know, 10 years ago, people were saying, oh, business is business and politics is politics. And increasingly, particularly over the period of the last 18 to 24 months with COVID and other things that have happened, increasingly, this is coming back as these two things are definitely related and the bigger the fairness or perception of equality gap gets, we run into things. So I'm really curious, you know, in and, the course and, of and, your- and,
1: and Timothy, you can go right back to the beginning to Adam Smith, right? You can go right back to theory of moral sentiments, you know, and, and sort of the, the, the development of free market thinking from its roots in moral philosophy. So. I think this is something that's played out over the centuries, and and what we're going through now is just the current iteration.
2: Well, it, it, with that in mind, I'm curious, you know, when you do this polling of the public, what have you noticed has shifted most in the last, I mean, clearly we can get into a session just about COVID, but I'm just thinking over the last, you know, seven years since you joined, have you noticed like a macro trend? And then obviously COVID, you know, kicks in and makes a huge difference, but- what's the macro tend and then what's the COVID add?
1: Yeah. Well, a couple of observations in a a broader sense from the polling, when you step back and look at at its sort of trajectory and there's specific changes and then there's sort of an overall tone and feel that you get when you do as much sort of public consultation as we do. I would say workers, how a company treats its employees has always been the number one priority for for the public. When you ask people, what does a just company do? Almost from day one, um, the relationship between a company and its employees, and now increasingly in the gig economy, its contractors is is paramount. And, And in particular, the issue of wages. You know, people want to feel as though they're getting um, fairly compensated. And the idea of a, of a fair shake, a fair day's pay for a fair day's work is surely a universal one, you know? And we see that we, uh, in terms of the demographic breakdown, that, that issue and, and that stakeholder, the worker, is important no matter how you break that down by economic bracket, by race, ethnicity, gender, location, political ideology. So I think that's a consistency, which is kind of interesting. Um, I think we've seen certain issues ebb and flow. We saw environment very important a few years ago, and then it sort of dropped away. And last year was less important because I think people were very focused on health and safety, obviously during COVID after George Floyd, very focused on what companies were doing on racial equity, uh, diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Um, and so we've seen, you know, events on the ground, if you will, show up in the polling. I can tell you in in, um, in 2016, you know, in election year, the year uh, President Trump was elected, saw real focus on jobs. People were really worried about jobs in America, good jobs, getting created. And we felt as though that was going to be actually... You know, a a defining issue in the election. I think it was. Um, Most recently, we've seen issues around integrity rise to the top. So last year, um, leadership with integrity was identified as, you know, one of the top issues. And this is in a COVID year. So we we had a whole bunch of COVID metrics, which we explicitly tested. We had a whole bunch of questions that we explicitly tested about around racial equity. and those things were, were obviously more important than they had been in previous years, but, but this idea of leadership with integrity, um, companies really speaking up um, the expectation that CEOs have a role to play on social issues, that silence is not really an option. I think more and more people expect that. We've seen a lot of uptick also in activism. And by that, I mean, uh, people willing and and, saying that they have been active as workers as consumers as investors um you know meaning workers within a company saying we want change or we want a company to do this or that when you're looking for a job job seekers increasingly prioritizing just business behavior wanting to see what a company's doing on those issues we've seen it certainly with consumers and I would say the, 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 the stakeholder that we're very t- close with, which is the investor community, a massive uptick over the last seven years since we started polling in, in ESG investing. And, and by that, I mean, in the broader sense, investors wanting to uh, integrate in some way, shape or form this idea of an environmental, social, economic health governance um, dimension to how they invest believing that that is actually better for their um, you know for their outcomes their financial outcomes and our work certainly supports that case you know just businesses and our just indices all all outperform their benchmarks so so i think you've seen activism increase across the board and that that creates a sort of a self you know sort of mutually reinforcing demand for more data more information and so companies are more rewarded for their leadership so this is sort of the virtuous circle that that I think is kicking in, but 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 the risks of getting it wrong um, are also have also increased, and certainly over the last 12 months, the risks of being seen as as sort of political uh, for many companies have, have heightened. Certainly since the you know the January insurrection um, and the assault on the capital, so so we've seen all of that show up as well, and and it it's created a very complex working environment for business leaders in America today.
0: Yeah, related to that, Martin, so uh, George Packer has a new book out where he talks about the four Americas, and he roughly divides them into categories called Free America, which are people who are all about the foundational, you know, individual freedom and liberty and and all of that. Uh, Real America, so-called, which are much more conservative, uh, socially, religiously, and so forth. And then he has smart America, which is sort of the educated elites, and just America, which are people more progressive who are looking for fairness and, and uh, writing historic wrongs and so forth. And as you know, there's tremendous polarization and division in, in those worldviews. And, and you just mentioned it's showing up now in how business leaders are able to relate. up In your polling and other data, are you seeing those kinds of divisions because there is there, there's, there's sort of public uh, sentiment that's propelling us forward, but is there also a public sentiment that's holding holding us back in this way? And how do we rise above those four and get to some kind of uh, you know, conscious America or equal America or some other mm-hmm. narrative that can actually appeal to everybody? How do we, because I believe that the story of business that we stand, conscious capitalism stands for that uh, just capital stands for is one that does and should appeal across the board because it is rooted in freedom and voluntary exchange. It, it, it actually generates superior profits uh, over time, right? But it does take care of people and the environment at the same time. So it, it kind of satisfies and has a potential to satisfy the key things that everybody has in mind. So I'm struggling with these questions myself.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, look, everybody's got their fears of change, you know, f- fears of having to give something up. There's a lot of mythology around this. Um, the mythology, for example, that somehow if I pay my workers more or invest in, you know, human capital, this is to the detriment of my, my shareholders. You know, if I'm, if I'm, you know, if I'm a big corporation and I'm investing in the health or educational infrastructure in the towns and villages and cities where I operate that that's somehow taking my eye off the ball as a business leader, and I'm I'm not really serving my shareholders well, and and so I think we have this sort of series of ingrained norms, which which um, similar to you know Copernicus and the mm-hmm. the 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 discovery of the of the of the planets and the um, you know the Earth's. Uh, revolution around the sun, I think you begin to change people's mindsets, people get very fearful of what that, what that would mean for them and the power that they ha- hold and, and um, the way they think the world should be. And I understand that. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of people in America who feel let go by capitalism, that uh, it's not really working for them, it's working for somebody else, you know, it's working for the elites, or it's working for people who are already rich. Um, but I don't feel as though it's working for me. And so why, why should I care? Mm. You know, What have I got to lose? And I, I think that's, it's just, that's what Timothy sort of harkened back to. I think it's a very dangerous state of affairs. I, I can't say that I've seen the, a, a clear split in those four areas Raj, but, but I do see fears across the board, but I also see a lot of unity You know, one of the things that I love about what we do at Just is we try to cut through to very basic um, human beliefs about what they want. We don't use fancy language. We just, you know, we make sure people understand when we say the word just, and I'm confident that people do actually have a pretty good handle on that. It's not the same as ethical. It's not the same as, as good, necessarily. Um just somehow implies a higher level of wisdom um and and i think and and what's right you know Mm -hmm. we've 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 sort of you know in our efforts to communicate this we've we've actually gone, gone through a lot of a lot of uh different versions of trying to describe this but but it comes down to sort of trying to do the right thing and when you talk about um, a company, you know, treating its workers fairly, let's say, let's say or supporting the communities in which it operates. Um, we haven't seen a lot of division on that. I think people mostly get that, mostly understand that. Um, it's not woke to, you know, invest in your workers. It's not, it's not woke to be concerned about the communities where, you, you know, your, your people are you know where you operate and where the your employees live, you know. Um, I think I think what what's happened is um, you know, we've got people's people prey on on fears and present this idea of 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 stakeholder capitalism as we conceive it as being one thing or another. Even in the last week or so, we've seen a lot of quite vitriolic debate around, what it what it what it is or isn't. And it's interesting to me, we can't even agree on what we're disagreeing on. It, It seems that that's not too much of a circular argument. It feels like we're having disagreements about stakeholder capitalism, which actually are not what we would say is is a stakeholder approach around technicalities of governance and who owns the corporation, things like that. So I think when you boil it down to its basics, Raj, most people want the same thing and and want it to work better, and that that needs to show up in their daily lives: how they put food on the table, how they um, save for their retirement, how they put a roof over their heads, how they care for their family and build a future for their kids. Like that's that's universal wherever you go in the world. So, mm-hmm. business needs to do more of that and be seen as doing more of that, and that's good for business. and And I think that essentially is the essence of the American dream. It's not trying to take it in a new direction. It's, try, it's almost trying to get back to it and make it more available to more people.
0: And part of that, uh, to me, you know, this idea of being just is about acknowledging the past and not just looking purely to the future, that right? somehow you have to uh, atone for it or you have to acknowledge it and If you don't heal what has happened in the past, it's hard to move forward and heal in the future. Would you agree? And I think that's where a lot of people also get stuck that we don't want to talk about what happened, you know, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, et cetera. Uh, And I think the the U.S. especially is is always looking ahead and doesn't want to look back. Mm -hmm. And yet that is why the same wounds keep opening up over and over again, because we maybe haven't done adequately, uh, you know, haven't uh, acknowledged those. Heal those, you know, kind of the truth and reconciliation idea. So, do you think we need more of that? You know, there are people who resist the whole conversation around diversity, for example. They're saying, okay, today we just want to make it equal level playing field today. You know, nothing to do with what happened in the past, etc. Um, how do you feel about that? Just looking purely with a forward-looking lens versus acknowledging a historic uh, context and the uh, consequences of which are still with us in many ways.
1: Well, we typically um, focused on the very simple questions that I've just described, you know, what, what is, what do you want businesses to do or not do, and use that as a lever to try and drive change. I think it's human nature to look forward. I think it's human nature to, to believe in the promise of a better tomorrow. Um, it's hope that keeps us going. And I, I think our uh, theory of change is that by sort of spotlighting what that path forward could look like um, and showing what can be done, what businesses are doing. Uh, you mentioned diversity, you know, equity and inclusion. You know, we've, after George Floyd, we set up a tracker. We began to track what companies are doing on that issue. We began to work with two other nonprofits, profits uh, PolicyLink and uh, FSG, actually, I don't know if FSG is a non-profit or a for-profit, but both of which had already been working very very closely together on this issue with big companies. And so the three of us now have developed this, uh, what we call a CEO blueprint um, for racial equity and it's gathering a huge amount of support and interest. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason why that is, is it, 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 it sort of is bringing to, in a very practical level, a, a roadmap for what companies can do you know how they can um, move forward how they can begin to take steps that um, you know help them achieve what their what their promises or the targets that they've made you know their, yep. their their commitments and I feel like that is really a sort of a, a, a very um, you know, healthy collaboration and folks are very willing to join that um, because, again, it speaks to this path forward. I don't know whether or not that would be, you know, enhanced or improved with a more uh, Mm backward-looking review of history, as you say, and what can we learn from history and how can we avoid repeating that or how can we, you know, also really, to your point, sort of make reparations or other Form of of sort of truth and reconciliation that's not really come up. It's not really been part of that. And I don't know that's because people are uncomfortable um, or because the way we're framing the whole process. But I do think that progress is well within our grasp. Concrete material progress is well within our grasp by by sort of bringing that forward path to life and having it be very specific. So I I don't think it. I don't think it's a, a, a necessary for progress to be made, um, you know. and it's for others really to say whether or not that should be done to improve you know, that path forward. All I can really talk to is what we're doing and what we see working. And is
0: that, is that a document that's publicly available already, the, the CEO blueprint?
1: Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, if you go to justcapital.com, We've got a whole series of of, uh, content and features there about our work on racial equity. Um, And the blueprint is very prominently featured. And if anybody has any trouble getting hold of it, just let me know, but it's all public and we want, we want, you know, obviously we're trying to drive public awareness of that work um, because it doesn't have to just reside in the realm of large corporations. You know, this is something that could be picked up by any, any company who's, who's keen to see, okay, what can I do? You know, how can I be better? What are, the, what are the big corporations doing? How much of that applies to me in my situation?
2: Well, I wanna connect the dot to that, to something you said earlier about leadership and integrity. And, and I think it raises a really interesting question around the CEOs who do embrace something like the blueprint and their responsibility for then saying something publicly because not saying something is saying something. And, you know, increasingly that's becoming an interesting discussion that when it comes to these questions of equity and diversity, and, you know, even to some issues like voter rights, um, you know, there is a sense of integrity. You can't internally be telling everybody we're behind this blueprint, we're trying to do this, and then be silent when asked by the reporter, do you have a point of view on this? So I'm curious, what are you seeing in that space between that that question of integrity and this kind of blueprint work?
1: Well, first of all, I 100% agree with what you just said, that it is an issue. Um, the sort of the, the gap between word and deed. So, you know, how are companies closing that gap? How are they showing progress you know, I, I, I think there's a growing sense that companies don't have to um, be silent until they've got a great, positive, wonderful story to tell. Um, you know, I think there's a, there's a sort of a gritty vulnerability to this journey, which is also very interesting to a lot of stakeholders. And companies can, can gain real um, credibility, I think, by, by showing a little bit of vulnerability about how they're doing. It's an interesting sort of case study to us was was um paypal who we work closely with and dan Schulman tells the story of how they really began this journey on on what has now become a, an initiative we have with them called the work of financial wellness and it began with a survey he did of his staff to say hey how are you doing financially and he expected as he says um a great story they're a wealthy company they're at a, one of the world's top technology, you know, and, and sort of payment processing financial services businesses, and he expected it to be a great story. And it turns out it wasn't so great, because there was quite a few people who worked at PayPal, and maybe mainly in their call centers, who were really experiencing acute financial distress. But until late, they asked themselves that question, they they just didn't know. And so armed with that information, they developed a program that began to alleviate some of those stresses. And that's, I'm gonna actually an advisor on that program. And it required a real sense of vulnerability, of humility, of a willingness to go somewhere that maybe might make them uncomfortable with the the answer. So telling that story publicly, I hope, um, sort of emboldens other company leaders to say, you don't have to be awesome on everything. You can can come out and say, we're working on this and we're getting better. And DEI is a great place to do that because there's still so much room for improvement. So, you know, how are companies taking action on that? What what does it mean? What what failures have you experienced? Why is progress not as rapid um, or as meaningful as you'd expected it to be? There's no doubt that people want the information. So it shows up in demand for data and transparency. It's certainly going to show up in what investors want to know, about the company they're invested in, you've only got to look at the proxy voting season this Mm. year, um, which was dominated by climate and diversity issues. Um, Investors wanting more information from management about what companies are doing on that. What are they doing to meet their commitments? So, and I think it's going to show up also in required uh, disclosure from the SEC. Companies are going to be, um, uh, you know, at some point in the near future uh, required to disclose more. And the irony is many companies want that because it brings a little bit more consistency, a little bit more more coherence to this whole process of disclosure and transparency. And and I think that, for many companies, would be in their best interest you know, to have more consistent, more credible information in the marketplace. So, so that's the trajectory. But to your point, this, this gap between commitment, what I'm promising, what I'm saying I'm doing, and what I'm actually doing, that's a risk. That's a risk for companies. And it's, it's an opportunity for them to close that and so that's where many companies are focused right now. And, and I think that's not going to go away. I think that's going to be a constant theme. How are you actually doing and mm-hmm. who who can, who can tell a really authentic story?
2: Well, telling the authentic story, I'm, I'm really curious from your perspective, the role of the board in agreeing with the PayPal decision or you know, begging forgiveness afterwards. I mean, so what is that role of the CEO communicating with the board and saying, listen, I'm going to make this statement about diversity and equality and inclusion, and I want to check with you first. Or the board saying, you know, like, well, what were you thinking saying that? <laughs> you should have checked with us first. Do, do, do you guys have a point of view on on what is the role of board in that communication with the CEO and the CEO's latitude to be able to make some of these decisions?
1: Boards have a long-term duty of care to the companies on, on, you know, on whose board they serve. So theirs is a a long-term commitment and a a responsibility to ensuring the future, you know, longevity of the organization and its success and it's, it's um, you know, it's, it's survival. And so where issues uh, relate to that, and demand board attention, board members need to know what managers are doing to respond to those existential risks um, and also those opportunities. And if boards don't respond to that, the likelihood is at some point it will show up. It will show up as perhaps a major risk, a major incident, there may be an overall long-term erosion of shareholder value, which will show up in board activism or, or you know, investor activ- activism. Um, we've seen that again this season with engine number no. one and climate uh, with ExxonMobil. Um, so, so boards, I think, certainly have a crucial role to play in requiring corporate leadership to develop and implement plans to manage risk and capture opportunity for the benefit of the of the company over the long term and as these stakeholder issues have risen to that level um more in some companies than others um so it's not this is not a sort of a one-size-fits-all um boards need to be more aware and i you know spent a little bit of time you mentioned the nacd um award that i was very you know humbled and privileged to receive but it really came as a result of a lot more interest by directors and 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 boards in this question of what is the board how does it show up in 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 the risk committee how does it show up in in finance and audits how does it show up in compensation executive compensation for example more and more companies are are, are including um, let's say uh, an esg facet of CEO or C-suite bonuses and total compensation packages. So, so you see it show up in lots of different ways. And I think what it, what it means is that board members, certainly large publicly traded companies, but by no means limited to that, have to be much more aware of what this means for, uh, for, their, for their duties. What does this mean in terms of fiduciary responsibility? What does this mean in terms of you know, the future of my company? and 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 the questions that i ask of management um, and certainly we've seen a lot of that so that that that's sort of that's sort of not a you know it's 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 a i think it's a, probably a more of a generational shift but certainly much much more important now to be to be aware of that if you're an oil and gas company and you're a board member and you're not asking pointed questions about how companies are responding to uh, you know climate change you know you're not really doing your job
0: Martin, uh, most of your data gathering uh, and analysis is U.S. based. Is that correct? Or- That's right.
1: All our polling is U.S. based. The companies we track are international. They're obviously, that, that they're the largest publicly traded corporations. And some of the polling work actually identifies global issues. I mentioned climate, but also human rights, supply chains, things like that.
0: Do you have a sense of whether uh, we, uh, the U.S. Is, is ahead of most other regions in the world? or are there regions that you think are moving faster in, in these issues?
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, you know, the, the US, I would say, um, American companies that I've been tracking and, and we've been tracking at Just Capital, you know, uh, when they really get behind an issue can be inc- can move very quickly and very creatively and with, with, you know, with great effect. And I'm thinking of companies like Microsoft, it's our number one company, yeah. um, Intel, another great example of leadership uh, on diversity, equity, and inclusion. If anyone, anyone listening to this or watching this wants to see a company that's probably at the top of the pile when it comes to um, disclosure even on, on uh, equity, uh, I would look no further than Intel. And so you've seen real leadership from companies on that. Um, You know, on the international stage, I I think there's certainly many companies internationally that have embraced stakeholder leadership. And, you know, the one that obviously springs to mind is Unilever under Paul Polman's leadership. Um, And Danone under Emmanuel Faber, you know, that will continue even though he's no longer there. So... I I can see there's definitely a lot of international leadership, but it does, you know, there is a, there is a social and cultural, political differences around the world. You know, I was in on holiday in Sweden a couple of years ago and, you know, with a, with a good friend who worked in a large Swedish company, we were talking about the just model and how important to Americans healthcare was, you know, and benefits is very important as an attribute of a just company. It doesn't really apply in, in in Sweden or other countries, sort of, you know, our friend, my friend was scratching his head, like, why? why would, I mean, he understood it, but um, it just sort of highlighted for me the regional differences that that that, that we have. So, I'm anxious to poll internationally, Raj. I, I think that'd be incredible to get the views of people from around the world on what they want, what what they want business to do more of and less of. You know, there's so much action going on in the international corporate. Sustainability, you know, world on the global stage. I'm part of a, a G7 task force on impact reporting and integrity, and it's a global effort. And um, but I I really f- feel like it's very important to bring this back down to Main Street, you know, Main Street, you know, around the world. What do ordinary people really care about? How does it connect to them? To this point of feeling included and and that you have a stake. So. But I think American leads in some places and lags in others. And, and um, you know, I feel like a lot of the investors are catching up very, very quickly. We've seen pension funds and large asset managers around the world move, move a lot faster, but, but look, at, look at how fast BlackRock has moved and look at how fast a lot of the US pension funds are moving um, and their influence in the world. So, so I think there's a lot of, of interesting catch up being played um, certainly, in the financial community, to you know, to take that one stakeholder.
2: you know, you use BlackRock as an example, and not to to contradict you too much, but one of their their, their recent uh, <laughs> former head of sustainability has come out and written a pretty scathing letter about what's real and what's not real. And uh, you know, the Financial Times did a great job earlier this week of saying, "Here's nine myths that that they basically." Holds up and says, you know, listen, guys, you know, beware, ESG is dangerous. Now, in in fairness, the FT then wrote an article this morning that said, you know, now let's talk about the other side. Mm-hmm. But um, but I think there is, you know, sort of this uh, BlackRock, and uh, you know, we had the Business Roundtable, and also studies now come out and said, you know, the Business Roundtable was just talk. And there, you know, none of the boards approved anything. None of them have reported anything new in any of their uh, annual reports, etc. So, some scathing commentary coming back that says, "Listen, was was that all? You know, is is this real or is it not?" And it gets messy because at one level we want to say, "Oh, we're at this tipping point; things are changing." And then as soon as we start saying that, we get this blowback that says, well, you know, not really. And oh, by the way, when ExxonMobil sells those dirty assets, somebody's making a lot of money by buying those dirty assets and exploiting them in the short run. So it's um, uh, so it's really a mishmash. So I'm really curious, you know, how you make sense of this world where, you know, is BlackRock good? Is BlackRock not good? You know what is real, and how do we know?
1: Look, you you can contradict me anytime you want. I, I I'm a, I'm a big fan and proponent of robust debate around all of this because there's a lot of room for improvement within the ESG and stakeholder capitalism world. Um, you know, I'm I'm I've spent 25 years. I devoted my career to that. And, you know, I'm as much a critic of a lot of the sort of Kool-Aid drinking, bandwagon jumping um, ESG, you know, proponents, because you got to look what what's really under the hood. What are they really doing? And are they really driving change? So I've, I've actually been asking that question, blogging about that and talking about that in my articles for for quite some time. I'm not surprised that you've seen the blowback that you just referred to over the last couple of weeks. I think it's important that it happen because I think it will flush out um, m- you know, more discussion on what's real and what's not. And it will force those who are really proponents of, of ESG and stakeholder capitalism like me to think in a more disciplined way, you know, to respond to that uh, in a thoughtful way. So it's not just hand waving, um, it's real. So with that said, um, I think we are in the early stages of a long-term transition here. It's not surprising to me that um, there'll be critics and each will have their own motivations. I don't know the guy from BlackRock. Um, He wasn't at the company that long and he had a good title, but I don't know how much of all of BlackRock's work he was involved with. I'm sure there's a backstory there. I know what BlackRock, following BlackRock for many, many years, uh, you know, what they've done in terms of their their engagement, corporate engagement, um, how influential Larry Fink uh, has been uh, within the asset management community, and sure, they may not be doing everything people want, and they may not be going as fast as some people want, but I certainly don't think it's dangerous, as the FT said. I think that's a headline. That's just clickbait. You know, um, the fact is that that capital flowing into companies and and A sort of let's call it you know in a direction that drives forward leadership from companies that are addressing societal needs is a good thing um and it's going to get a little messy and we need better data and we need to know what outcomes are actually being created and we need to know how to get the most out of every dollar of capital that's going into impact so we can figure out okay well how does that get optimized you know, so there's just a ton of quantitative work that needs to be done um, in order to make that, uh, make that you know, better. Um, but I don't think that you have to have governance reform, you know, to lift wages. You know, we, we don't have to see. I, I, I don't believe that the BRT statement is an empty promise or just mm-hmm. words because we track in a data-driven way just what those BRT signatures have done. And you know, I wish I had it to hand here or a slip of paper, but those companies, the BRT signatories, so the publicly traded BRT signatories for the revised statement of purpose of a corporation, typically you know, do better on DEI, do better on fair pay, are more generous philanthropically, created more jobs. You know, they do well across many, many of the things that we track. And that's not my ideology. I'm not, that's not a hand-waving belief, that's data. And so I, I feel like, and perhaps none of that needed a change in corporate documentation. So that's not to say that governance reform or governance change couldn't accelerate a stakeholder economy, but you don't need it in order to be a stakeholder driven company. There's nothing stopping any business right now from investing more in human capital or investing in the communities where it operates. On the contrary, there's every incentive to do that because it's better business. Um, so I think we get caught up in this sort of, uh, this, this sort of very sort of, um, I don't know, hot debate of, of polarized opinion on, on what it is and what it isn't, how it can be made better. How it can be move faster? And I, I think that's all That's all fine, that's gonna happen. Uh, people wanna sell books, people need to drive their own agendas, people need to sell or drive, you know, clicks, fine. But at the end of the day, let's look back in a few years time and say, okay, are we actually creating outcomes that are bettering society? How are those businesses doing, you know? And and, and our, our companies' leadership, um, really beginning to say, okay, to compete and win in the 21st century, we need to create value for all of our stakeholders. And I think that's, that's the answer. And I think that that's what most Americans want. And I bet you if I polled around the world, a majority of people polled would say the same thing. So, so I, I stick, I come back to that, Timothy, to cut through all of this. Some of those points, those nine points, I would vehemently disagree with, but I don't wanna go through them because I think it's a red herring.
0: Well I think we are we're very much in agreement on all of that. Um, would you say therefore that you are strongly optimistic about the future or do you feel about the pace at which I think we understand the direction at which things are going in, in which things are going It's generally positive. Uh, do you think uh, we're making progress rapidly enough? Do you think we're approaching a tipping point? are we in the middle of it? When is our Berlin Wall moment? what would that look like? I mean to me I'm getting increasingly not, what is this and why do we need it, but how do we do it? More and more companies are on the how do we do it stage of this. Yeah, you
1: agree? I think, um, I think we might have had the moment. I think it was called 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, I've just seen such a, uh, I think, an irreversible uptick in interest across the board from people to fundamentally rethink the relationship between business and society. Uh, I think it's going to get messy, but I think it's it's. I think we've crossed the Rubicon. So, to me, it's now a question of okay, what does the market need to really uh, accelerate that that change that that that, that spark that that that's already happened? Um, how can we get more support for that? Um, more support on the right and the left. How do we get um, how do we lay people's fears, you know? How do we clarify what, what it is that we're talking about? Um, and I see I'm optimistic because I, I think that there's an appetite, more and more of an appetite to do that. I think people are just fatigued with endless polarized um, battles. And I think at the end of the day, a lot of what we want is, is we, we, we have in common. So I'm I'm optimistic about that. Um, yeah, I think we're I think we're we're already there.
2: I love it. Now, Martin, you, you mentioned that you've been in this space for a long time, and I think Raj and I are always curious about the personal backstory. What was it in your background? What was it that got you on this track that has you here with us today, talking about? just a better way of doing business.
1: (laughs) Well, I guess the people that I met along the way, I mean, I, I, you know, when I graduated St. Andrews, wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And uh, as well, I was at McGill. I was sort of really began to think about, you know, how I could apply my knowledge, my skills to, to do something useful in the world. You know, I always kind of wanted to make, make a mark, you know, to, to do something that I thought was really meaningful. And, um, when I came back from Montreal, I, I worked in London for a bit. I worked at an oil company and uh, I was in the environmental group there. And there was a manager there, this, this big six foot something classic oil guy who ran the environmental department. His name was Tony, (laughs) Tony Helis. His name was, and, um, you know, he, he sensed this in me and we'd have a lot of conversations about change. He was a real visionary actually. You know, he talked about how the, the future of the oil industry and certainly the downstream oil sector oil, oil sector was, was was gonna change. And he, he really urged me to follow the money. You know, he said, if you really wanna make, a, make an impact, you gotta follow the money. And so I, I left that to do a PhD and that was in 1993. And it was just after the Rio, first Rio earth summit. And you might remember this, but in, in and around that time, maybe 1994 or 95 was the first UN environment program summit around finance and insurance. It went by mm-hmm. the acronym of UNEPFI. And it embraced this concept of, of, um, Sustainable development, which had just been coined by Harlem Brundtland and the Brundtland Commission. And it was sort of, well, how is this relevant to the financial community? And, you know, here I was doing my PhD in Edinburgh and really thinking about, okay, what I want to do. And my PhD was in sort of environmental risk. And I, I was lucky because after a week into my PhD, my supervisor quit. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't sound very lucky, but let, let me finish ah, that. I'm sure into. there's a
2: follow-up to that. <laughs>
1: he said, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is I'm leaving the university. I'm going to get you another year. You know, someone else is going to supervise you. But the good news is I'm going into private practice and I'm going to be an environmental consultant. And he's now actually a very senior person in the UK. He's at Cranfield, I think Simon Pollard, his name was. And he made sure that my PhD was rounded in sort of grounded in 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 real environmental challenges and I had the luxury Hmm. of it's probably one of the first PhDs in environmental science stuff in in uh in the UK I'm I'm guessing but 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 um I took courses in everything I took courses in agriculture and politics in you know in sort of like oceans and water I took courses on on sustainability, what, what does that mean? And I, I just, I had this voracious appetite to just sort of surround myself in this thing. And I just had a gut feel, that's what I wanted to do. And I, I wanted to be, go to business. So I felt like I had a natural, um, you know, just a natural draw to the world of finance and business. And I felt like that was a great way, a great lever. and and. One of my PhD peers went off into the nonprofit world, another, I think, joined the the government. And I I was like, no, I I want to go to business. So I became a consultant and then I found my way to Invest and then Swiss free and, and then the rest. And so that, that was really a defining period that sort of 1992 to 1996, 97 period where I really felt like I laid the foundations for the rest of my career.
2: Cool cool. Now, I loved having you on today. I think Raj and I both enjoyed this was great. And if people want to know more about Just Capital or more about you, what's the best way for them to contact you?
1: Well, if you just go to justcapital.com, we are as a nonprofit, everything we do, we put out there and all of our reports, all of our research our contact details it's all there so it's really the best resource to follow up from anyone's interested in what we're trying to do and become part of it and we we actively encourage that you know we're we're here to try and create something that is bigger than ourselves and as a nonprofit, it's really interesting the first time i've run a nonprofit. i've never worked as hard i've never been as passionate about what i do um and so i really Yeah, we're in open for business mode. So I would encourage anyone to follow up if you're interested.
0: So I was gonna ask you, what is next for Just Capital? What do you see as some of the new domains, new areas that you might enter into that you haven't gone into yet?
1: Very much in growth mode. We wanna expand the number of the Just family of funds and our sort of assets under influence. We wanna expand our polling and our survey work and deepen that. Um, We certainly wanna expand the platform for tracking companies. We wanna be the most trusted objective uh, source of company stakeholder uh, performance information. Um, we wanna drive change at scale. We've got a series of programs Raj that, that are areas where we've we've really leaning in with the support of different um, foundations and, and donors to drive change on specific issues. And worker wellness and just jobs is one of them. Racial equity is another. So I could see as expanding those programs and adding more programs to that because change isn't easy. Change is not easy. It's you've you've got to change through rational pathways of data and analysis and 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 sort of um, you know uh, really sort of dates you know quantitative of products and tools, but you've also got to drive change through people's minds and hearts and through narratives. And that's, that's really the hardest part of it. So working much more closely with the people whose both lives we're trying to change, you know, and improve telling the human stories behind that, who are the heroes today in companies who are driving change. That, that to me is a fascinating story yet to be told. So I think it's just a tremendous uh, opportunity that we have and, and uh, that's, I'm really excited about that future.
0: Well, I wanna thank you for the work you're doing and uh, the incredible leadership that you're showing there. And it's really a gift to all of us and you're making the world better every day. So thank you so much.
2: Yes, thank you, Martin, for joining us today. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us as well. And on whatever channel you're listening to this podcast on, feel free to go down and hit the subscribe button. And if you'd like to leave Raj and I any comments or questions, please feel free to go over to the Conscious Capitalist podcast. Theconsciouscapitalism.com is where you'll find us. And you'll note there that there's a place where you can send Raj and I a message with any thoughts or comments. Thank you again, Martin. This was wonderful. Uh, fellow travelers, um, just a better way of doing business. Just business. Gotta love it. Thanks so much.
1: Thanks so much. Really appreciate the opportunity. Big shout out to the Just team. Keep going. Awesome work. And uh, really grateful for the chance to come and, and uh, talk about it today.